Welcome to the Nativist Podcast, where we tap into our instinct and natural power to live intuitively. The ultimate goal is to leave the world healthier and more beautiful than we found it. It all starts on the individual level by cultivating our mind-body connection. Whether you're on a healing journey or just want to look and feel your best, I hope by the end you feel a little happier, a little more inspired, and a little more invested in yourself and the world. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Thank you. Hey, thanks for coming. Glad you're here. Today's guest is Nathan Richardson of No Relation that we know of. To me, maybe. We didn't close that door, so possibly we're related. I mean, he's Richardson, so he's a cool guy. But you'll see that for yourself. He really is. And he is a professor at University of Texas, San Antonio. He teaches Spanish literature. He taught international studies. He teaches this really cool class that he'll tell you about. And what a cool guy with brilliant insights. I love how he articulates them. And just some aha moments in this. And you can't see me, but... Throughout our conversation, I was nodding furiously and clapping my hands and just totally in it. And I think you might have the same reaction. Just oh, good stuff. Such good stuff. We're talking about diversity of thought, the power of kindness, especially in politics, division, how to bridge the gap good ways to live life. He has a homework assignment at the end that I fully encourage you to do. Good stuff. Good stuff. You guys will like it. Thanks for being here. Okay, let's do it. Okay, welcome everybody. I am talking to Nathan Richardson and Nathan, tell us about yourself. Tell us what we need to know about you. Uh, so I, that's always a good question, right? What, what, it what is. What do people need to know about, about someone? Uh, it's the worst because, question, in my opinion. I hate I hate getting it. How do you even approach yeah. it? Um, you know, yeah, I, I could start really big. I'll just start small, <laughs> start with the details. You know, what do I do for a living? I'm a college professor. I teach Spanish literature. Um, I also teach, I've taught international studies for years. Um, I teach honors class. I teach an honors class right now entitled The, uh, the Art and Politics of Walking. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of everything. Uh, it's one of these classes inspired by something you just notice over years and years and years of study and teaching. And you realize that just so many great thinkers are, have also been uh, just uh, almost incorrigible walkers. And that so many important uh, events in world history have resulted from people going on walks. Um, and so... I'm kind of interested in a lot of things, but my my, de my degree is actually in Spanish literature. In addition to being a college professor, I have been the uh, the president of a soccer club for wow. about a decade. I ran a, a soccer rec league for many many years. I was the director of coaching of a of a, of, a, of, a, of the competitive travel side of that club for a little while. So I've been very involved in, in soccer over the years. I'm kind of a mid level, mid to low level university administrator these days. And I'm the author of uh, of four books, and there's no need oh. to get into into those books oh. in detail. All I'll say is, the more important quote unquote the book is, the less I'm really interested in it. The less important I think it is. Uh, the more excited about the, the books that I'm most excited about are the books that had the least impact. And I think there's there's a, there's a lot to explore there. It tells sure. us about, uh, the, you know the values that of, of, of professions of our society and, and what really, what really matters and, and sometimes what, what may not matter. And, and yes. but I, I, I interesting that the books that have been most successful are the books that I'm least excited about. I'm also, uh, I've spent about, I don't know, five to six years of my life living outside the United States, okay. um, mostly in Spain and Argentina. So uh, I, I don't know if any of that makes me interesting. I'm a husband, I'm a father. I've lived a, a, a normal life, like probably a lot of your listeners. So you say after all of that, you finish it up with normal life. No, 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 no. You just hit us with the author of four books, lived outside the U.S. So much to explore there. So, wow, where to? Where well, to you know, I, I think I, 
want to be clear that we all do. We, we make choices in our lives and then we do the things that those choices lead us to do. And once upon a time, I made a choice to, to pursue higher education and I've, it's led to, I've been forced to write books, right? And so <laughs> it sounds great. I've authored books, but uh, you know, d- depending what we do, we may never author books, but I've never saved lives. I've never physically that's saved that's lives. Right. If you go to the medical fields, you've saved lives. You may save lives every day. And that's really ultimately maybe a lot more exciting than authoring books. Um, what I find is that people, we are always just so excited about what someone else does. And when you really think about it, I mean, each one of us, we make decisions and those decisions, when you start to list the things that result from those decisions, they can be fairly impressive lists. So I'll just throw that out. That's a very fair point. Humble, humble on your end, but very fair. Sure, sure, sure. And I think that's important to recognize too. And it reveals our values what impresses us reveals our values and what we respect. And also sometimes if it's outside of our realm of experience, we might be more impressed. Like you said, if certain choices have led your life to a certain conclusion, it would differ from yours. Yeah. You haven't had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I I one time was talking to a, a, a friend and she was just so impressed by all the things I was doing in the community. And I just paused her for a moment. I said, wait, you've been the president of PTO for like the last five years, right? <laughs> we, we all do the things that we can do. And I think if, if more of us would simply engage using whatever talents we have been blessed with, the world would be a much better place. But we, we do spend the time looking at each other and saying, well, how does that person do that? And I could never do that. Well, it's true. You could never, many people could never do what I've done. I could never do what you're doing. Um, I just found that a, a, a funny thing that she was so yeah. overwhelmed. I'm like, wait, you're, you've been the PTO president for like five years running. That's, 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 that's amazing. So yeah, you know. really though, truly. And even the little things that you can just so easily diminish, but really like running the PTO or even I've never, uh, served at a restaurant, but I'll look at some of these waiters and I'm like, wow, holy smokes. That's impressive. The things that they're juggling, the, all the things that they have to do and all the things that they're, um, attending to like in the moment, dang, that's impressive. And it's so, so easily, like I said, diminished. I think that's important to recognize those things that you've done or that other people have done. And maybe it's not authored a book or maybe it's not saved a life, but still impressive nonetheless. Yeah. I think that's important. That being said, too, going back to your impressive resume, when I emailed you to reach out to ask if you'd do this, you were in Peru or something. I'm like, yeah. okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm like, Sorry, I'm in Peru or I'm jetting off to Peru or whatever it was. And I'm like, this guy, he's going places. Like, <laughs> it's a dynamic um, life. But again, we all go places. I remember one one evening. Well, it was it was five o'clock in the morning, and I was in a hospital. Um, and my life had taken a, a complete, you know, 180. And I was thinking about colleagues of mine who were heading off to, uh, to India for the summer to go ride elephants, uh, people traveling around the world. And I was sitting at, actually in the business office of the hospital and they were uh, telling me how much everything that had just happened completely unexpected in my life was going to cost. And for a moment, I saw my not on top of elephants uh, that summer and saw my colleagues riding on elephants. And then you have these moments where you realize, well, no, this is, this is my experience for now. And my colleagues are not in a hospital gaining the, the, the wisdom <laughs> and the, the understanding of, of, the, of the twists and turns that life takes. This is, this is my, uh, my elephant for the season. I think we all have those, those elephants for the season, if you will. And yes, this last summer, I happened to be in Peru when you first reached out to me. <laughs> but I'm not in Peru every summer. <laughs> Good point. Good point. So that being said, how do you feel about the choices that you've made in your life? How, how What's your relationship to regret? How do you feel about it? Some people are like, I don't have any regrets. Some people are like, yes, and I appreciate them. Oh, I think I have a, a whole lifetime of regret, but that's not, I'm not, that's not to say that I, I live my life depressed. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. very aware of the decisions that we make. But I'm very aware, I think, that the decisions that we make, you know, when you open one door, you inevitably close thousands, millions, yes. an infinite, an infinite yeah. number of doors. 
Um, our lives are finite. We are mortal creatures. And I think in the end, that gives our lives tremendous meaning. I mean, it, 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 probably, perhaps you've, you've watched The Good Place, right? I thought The yes. Good Place yes. did an amazing job of helping people think through some of these issues that we don't tend to think through, what it means to, um, to, to live forever, what, what it means to, to dream of heaven and dream of our mansions on high and all these kinds of things. The fact of the matter is, um, I can look back at my life and I can think of all sorts of bad choices, mistakes. I, I, I personally don't think I'm in the perfect profession for myself. I've had a wonderful life as a college professor, but if I could go back now and do it all over again, I don't need to go into all the details, but I can, I can point, I could point out exactly where things went wrong. I can, I can point out moments in my life when medication, if it had been available at that time, and if I had known about it, would have made a difference in my life. Yeah. Um, I, I can, I could, we could talk about if different people come in my life, but I'm just talking about simple things as if, if certain medication had been available, I would have been in a different place and we can all do that. And, yeah. and so I guess the question is regret. There is, there, there's an awareness of so many missed opportunities, but those missed opportunities, the awareness of those missed opportunities make every choice that we make that much more beautiful, that yes. much, more, much more powerful. It yes. gives our life tremendous meaning and it makes our lives, I, I suppose you could even use the word sacred. There's a yes. certain, there's a certain sacred, everything we do is so special, so unique. And once you make those decisions, you kind of, you hit your wagon to those decisions and, and you go with it and you know that, that every, Every, yeah, every choice is, is, is those, you know, sliding doors. I don't know if you've seen the movie sliding That's doors. Exactly what was in my mind, that reference. Yes. Right? Um, but it's, but it's real. I know we, we all, we all come up with the, the, the approaches to life that we can live with. And some people do not like to think about the, the, the missed opportunities and the regrets. I, I think it, it is, it is who I am. I'll just say one thing. I was, I, I, I was talking to a friend one day and I said, if you were given the opportunity, I said, if you had to choose between eternal life, the the life of what you have right now, that you live forever with the life you have right now, or starting all over the same life, but being able to start all over and make different choices, what would you choose? And this person immediately said, oh, I love that latter option. I love the idea of living one's life over and over again, but being able to make different choices. Um, question, and it's, it's about half and half. Some people don't like that, but other people love that idea because- we look back and we think about all the, but I think what that tells you is that even when we are, when we, when we live with regret, we see something incredibly special about our lives and the, that, that ability to make choices with all the limitations that, that come with those choices. It's, it, that's what I want to go back and do. I don't want to live forever. I want to go back and, and have to choose over and over and over again. And uh, I just, I just found the, the response to that question. I thought yeah. was. Oh, that's fascinating. So every Wednesday I do, would you rather? And so I usually like to do like a gut punch for the last one. Um, not that that's necessarily a gut punch, but I love that thought. That is so interesting. And I could see how it would evenly divide people or it'd be about a 50, 50 break. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I think that's what I'd go for an immortality in and of itself looping in what you had said about um, finite, like finite lives, how we have finite lives, finite resources, all of that. That's so interesting because immortality might sound very appealing, but then you start to break it down and you're like, oh, okay, well think about all that that comes with and all that you have to take on with that. I mean, as far as if you or immortal, but then your loved ones aren't. So you're going to have to survive losing them. Um, the practicalities of that, the logistics of immortality, all of that. I mean, that's just so interesting. Ah, so much to talk about there. Okay. So one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to talk to you is talking about division and people getting so calcified in their thoughts and their beliefs and the gap widening between different groups of thought and people not wanting to cross that bridge and 
Okay. First question. Let's just hit it. Um, how have your personal political views evolved through the years? You don't even have to necessarily say what they are, but how have you seen them progress or even regress? Like what's your journey? Yeah. Been? yeah. Um, I mean, I think uh, th- there's definitely been an evolution in my life. I, I, we all grow up in, in, in a certain time in a certain place. I grew up in Orange County, California in the 1980s. Uh, my eighth grade or seventh grade class attended Ronald Reagan's rally in Fountain Valley, California. Oh, wow way back in the day. And so I kind of lived in Reagan, Orange County, California. So, you know, kind of raised amongst a, a, a fairly kind of upper middle class people enjoying the Reagan years. Um, and then I think like uh, most everyone who goes to college, uh, people sometimes get upset that college, everyone at college is liberal. Well, the fact of the matter is you, you come to college, you're, you're a bunch of kids who have just kind of heard what you've heard your entire life. You've, you've lived in, in the same place, heard the same thoughts. And you go to college, your mind's open, right? And so um, I think, uh, like uh, like a lot of college students, uh, um, I, I I become more liberal as I as I go to college, as I as I experience things, as I as I learn, you know, stories, uh, learn histories, learn facts that I was not aware of before, and it's it's not necessarily a political liberalization; it's, it's simply just a liberalization of the mind. Yeah, opening, yeah. Openness to new ideas. Yeah. I think the, what does happen. I, I think it's certainly a journey that I went on is that then you bring those ideas back home and I'm not, I'm not talking about my own parents, but you bring those ideas back home, so to speak, and you begin to get pushback and that pushback forces people into, to, to begin to take sides, right? Mm. That pushback, they're, they're pushing back on simply my excitement about new ideas, new facts uh, that I don't see as political necessarily. I just see these as exciting new things I'm learning. You get the pushback and that pushback tells you, oh, I must be on the left. Because the people pushing back are more conservative than me, they're on the right. And so then you do kind of join these tribes. And I would say um, the fact that I have lived my life in university where I have been able to rub shoulders with just a lot of really smart people, but it's not just a question of smarts, it's people who are being paid to dedicate their lives to, to knowledge, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you really, really understand political science, history, science, what, whatever it might be. And... Um, and again, the response of people who who feel uncomfortable with some of the things that that, that are constantly being discovered, again, kind of uh, creates that kind of forced forced polarity, and you uh, you just kind of see yourself in a certain position. But I'll say, um, you know, I, I, I was trained as a, as a scholar in literature and the humanities, and of course, we we tend to be quite liberal in those in those areas. We love to explore ideas. We're open to all sorts of new possibilities, and we see how language works and how how, how, how ideas work. And, and um, so I suppose at a certain point, I was probably as, as, as liberal as you could, as, as, as one could be coming out of those fields. And then I was asked to teach international studies and I began teaching international studies and I began um, reading in different fields for the first time in a, since my undergraduate years. And it was just this really interesting corrective. And I began to to realize that these divisions that had kind of developed in my mind were not really useful for understanding how the world really was. Mm. And as I began to to discuss the facts I was reading, the new new information I was gathering, and the different perspectives from different fields uh, uh, across the academy, it, it led me to suspect that that there weren't just, it wasn't just a left and a right going on. There were all these multiple lefts and all these multiple rights. But in, in fact, if we would all be a little more generalist in our knowledge and we would all talk a little bit more, perhaps all of these, all of these, this polarization might break down. Yeah. Because just so few people were open to this fact or that fact, depending on people's field, depending on people's interest, uh, different facts would bother them. Yes. And so that, I think, was a, a moment of correction, probably about 15 years ago in my life, I started to, to, to realize that most of us don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> and and, and if, that's, if that's the case for a lot of my friends in, in, in the university who spend their entire lives devoted to knowledge, uh, certainly I knew that was the case for, for a lot of people who don't have the time to, oh to just my gosh. read books and, and, and taking information. Most of us don't know what we're talking about. And then I'll, I'll, yes. I'll conclude a very long-winded answer, but certainly also about you know, 10, 15 years ago, the rise of social media um, was such a wake-up call uh, uh, as we saw 
how it began to divide our society in ways that had that we'd never experienced before. Um, you know, I was I was an adult with children, with adult friends, um, involved in clubs and 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 congregations where people had always gotten along, and suddenly, almost overnight, people were at each other's throats, and people were convinced that suddenly they knew the truth of this person. That a person that they had rubbed shoulders with, that they had served with, they'd worked alongside with, sometimes they'd wept with, they had loved. And after years and years, a handful of social media posts suddenly convinced people that this person is the enemy. And when that begins to happen, you have to pull back and, and, and you have to think, I may be politically on the left or the right or wherever you want to call me, but I as a human being cannot be this. This is there, there, there's something there's something bigger going on here. And so when you talk about kind of political views evolving, maybe it's a broader politics we're talking about. My, my politics are now a politics that go beyond what um, CNN and Fox and MSNBC would call politics or what our politicians would call politics. We have to think in much larger terms because the politics that we thought we were practicing have become so divisive and so um misinforming so misguiding they've led us to 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 make judgments about others um that just don't hold water when you step back from the political quote-unquote brink and see things in in, in broader terms and in that in that way yeah. one could what i suppose i could conclude by saying i've moved more to the center but in moving more to the center that doesn't necessarily mean that some of that my views on certain policies have changed but my views on what it all means have changed significantly. Um, and I'll just stop there. Yes. Just a blanket. Yes. <laughs> I identify with so much of that. I love that point. Going back to earlier, what you had said, just most of us don't know what we're talking about. And the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know, the more I know, I, the more I realize I don't know. And that's just a truth that just keeps proving itself over and over and over. And there are multiple quotes that I've seen on that too. And so I know I'm not the only one in that, but truly though, and I think that's good. I think that's good to get your world shaken every so often. And I think it's good to just, to stay humble, to stay open and stay humble and to, to just understand certainty can, can be very misleading. It can be very misguiding and it can be very damaging. It can be very unsettling to have uncertainty, but I think it's good to just, to stay open and to stay flexible and just understand that, I mean, your paradigm might shift in five, 10 years tomorrow, and you just have to always stay agile and just know that you <laughs> likely don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. As, as many of us don't. Um, so, and I don't know if this is quite what you were talking about, but this is kind of what it sparked in my mind as far as you have these social media posts and you, let's say that you see a friend post something on social media and it might, in your mind, identify them as like right or left or whatever camp that you think that they're in, but just humans are so layered and so complex and to just distill it to just they're, they're liberal, they're conservative, because like you, I find myself going more and more to the center, but just, I'm a human too. And there's so much to me and there's so much to, to my beliefs and my thoughts. And it, it just can't possibly be captured in one political party or one political theory or just whatever label you want to use. And so it's important to remember that about other people too, that they are just as layered and just as complex and they likely can't be captured within just one label or just one political party. And there's just so much to us and to our thoughts. And yeah, I really appreciate but, what you said. When, when people first started posting on, on Facebook, at least I should say adults, when, when people who were grown <laughs> 2009 first began posting on Facebook, younger people were posting a little bit before us. <laughs> suddenly I'm, I'm hearing things and I'm seeing things from people I'd known for years that were things that I'd never heard them talk about before. And I knew they didn't talk about it all the time. I knew they didn't think about it all the time, right? Um, and, and to reduce this person who I've known for years, and I've known they're more conservative than me, let's say, or they're more liberal than me, but suddenly they, 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 they articulate thoughts that 
are really filled with sound bites, things, information they've been receiving from the media, clearly. And then say, and then I would hear other friends say, oh, now we know the truth about this person. We know what they've been hiding all along. Like, I, I think after, you know, 10, 15 years living alongside this person, sometimes these are neighbors. You've, been, you've just done everything with them. You've, you've, you've had Christmas with them. You've had Easter with them. And because of a single post on Facebook, now we know who they are. <laughs> Years later, now that we know how algorithms work, yeah. we know that these algorithms are, are, are manipulating people into saying, saying things and manipulating us into saying things and picking fights and getting excited about things that they don't, they don't capture us at all. And if we step back, you, you give someone a couple hours to, to, to cool down or even five minutes, and they would say something very different. Yes. You, you an idea or if you simply give someone a hug and, yes. and, and I can get it that sounds cliche but but we really are we have learned to reduce each other to a set of ideas to a set yes. of concepts. Uh, and and who I am I may have a bunch of concepts in my I, in my head the way I think the world works but if we if we're honest about the way most of us live our lives we don't walk around all day long just thinking about concepts very yes. few of us are all day with laws, you know, con con constructing logical arguments in our heads about the way the world works. We are sentient beings in yeah. the end. We are emotional beings and we respond much more, much more powerfully and much more often to emotional cues, social cues than to uh, political discourse or even just kind of any kind of intellectual discourse. So, yes. Oh, that's brilliant. Yes, it's so true. And always, there's always some connection point usually multiple, but there's always some connection point with you and someone with whom you disagree. You just got to find it. And I, like, said, like an emotion, like emotions, that's usually the portal. That's usually the channel that you want to slide into there with, because yes, we're sentient and, beings. And if we want to make a better world, it's not only a possibility. I think it's an imperative. I think um, the, 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 a phrase that's been going through my head recently has been that kindness is a politics. Mm. You know, years ago, uh, 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 you know, I think it was feminists who first coined this term that the personal is the political. And I, I think it's it, it's it's great that we understand that that thing everything is political, right? That, that that you can you can see the politics, you can analyze almost anything. And I do this with my students sometimes, right? I'm, I'm teaching a course called the art and politics of walking, and you know who's able to walk in what areas, at what times of day, at what times of night, um, and how one is able to- Gosh. There's a whole politics to that. Yes. But what, we, what we've ended up doing in our society is we've ended up turning everything into like a mortal combat. And so the books you read, the TV shows you watch, the podcasts you listen to, um, the, 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 uh, um, the, the music you listen to, um, the people you hang out with, the religion you're a part of, uh, color of your skin everything is is politics and if someone doesn't look the right way or sound the right way or say the right things or if, or if somewhere in this podcast i misspeak and say something i shouldn't say it's all political and people can very quickly label me the enemy or or the ally yeah um, but but if everything is political then so too is um is 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 kindness yeah. <laughs> um, I had a friend who years ago kind of disowned me because I wouldn't condemn a, 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 a mutual friend as a Nazi because they voted for the wrong person. <laughs> and uh, and she called me a number of choice words that, uh, that that were basically trying to describe me as being completely spineless, that I was more concerned with being a nice person than with doing the right thing. But I think in this day and age, when we look at the political challenges that we're facing as a society, I think that uh, I'll just return to this concept. We can explore it later if you want to, but that there is a politics, um, there is political power in in kindness, and there's a true lack of political power when we ignore the human side of 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 the society that we're trying to fix, political order that we're trying to fix. Why are we trying to fix these things? What is the ultimate aim? And I think that there's in, in my studies. And of course, my own experience, I think there is a place, there's an important political place for not just hiding in the center and not hiding in moderation, but in embracing and, and struggling 
for the center for moderation. Yes. For one more time, I'm not talking about that. I I suddenly don't have strong feelings for, in my case, the environment. I am an environmentalist, but I've got to do it as a human being. I've got to recognize that I have neighbors who don't feel the same way I feel. Yes. And yes. I can't understand these things. If I can't work through these things. I'm not going to be able to achieve my environmental aims. Right. We're not going to save the planet by, blue, by by blowing the planet up. Right. Yes, 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 yes. And I love that. And gosh, okay, so many things to even talk about there. So you have, okay, starting here, talking about politics. What is fueling people's politics? So that's seeing the human behind the politics, seeing the human behind like the personal thoughts, the personal opinions. So why does this person believe what they believe? What fears, what insecurities, what hopes, what aspirations are driving their politics and their views and like digging down into that instead of just stopping at the, oh, they're a Republican, they're a Democrat, they're a whatever. And getting down into well, what's fueling all of that. What's the person behind that? And then, so I like to ask on my social media, I um, do like a hot topic Thursday and I like to ask some of those inflammatory topics that usually get people all heated. And I like to just really illuminate. These are people, these are, these are your friends, your neighbors. These are people that you can maybe like connect with on some other level, like as a fellow parent, as a fellow cyclist, as a whatever. These are people who might have very different opinions than you on abortion or whatever hot topic it is, but you would see them on the street or you would see them in the classroom or whatever. And they love their loved ones just as much. You would see them and they might even like you're broken down on the side of the road. They might likely stop and help you. So you can see the humanity in these people. They might differ with you on this hot topic but they have their own reasons for doing so. And so it's recognizing those reasons again, that are fueling those, um, that divergence, that difference of opinion. And then at the end of the day, you can still disagree. Sure. But at least understand and recognize that they have their own good reasons for believing what they believe. Um, And then I love how you had said that there's political power and kindness. Absolutely. And I do want to get into that later. Um, And you can't ignore the human side. You can't, especially if you're just purely pragmatic about it and you're just trying to achieve your ends, like even just that, you can't ignore that. That's part of it. And that's how you're going to achieve. And hopefully you also understand, especially if you're angling towards the center, that we need we need input from all sides. So you have everybody has their blind spots. Each individual has their blind spot. Each theory has its blind spot. So you just need to incorporate as much of that as you can to kind of make sure that everything is covered. And yeah, that's how you're going to do it. You know, and it's important for, you know, there, there are facts, right? There are scientific facts. There are historical facts. There are realities. But no matter how accurate those facts are, <laughs> there are also people, right? And we have to, you, yeah. you we have to. The whole point of understanding these facts and getting to be able to understand these facts that would help us to understand better the way the world's been, what we can do to fix the world, et cetera, is so that we can, in the end, I think we're all trying to create a better world. I yes. think we're society. I mean, I think that's why people are getting get yes. causes. You're not going to get there by, by using these facts as a hammer. Um, and I, it's not just the two of us saying this. I mean, one of the books that, or one of the thinkers who's most influenced me most recently, or maybe confirmed some of my thinking, but given me scientific basis for this thinking, is a, a scholar, uh, Erica Chenoweth. Okay. Um, he has a book that came out uh, in the last couple of years called Civil Resistance. And despite the fact that I would not say it's the most uh, readable book, she's not the greatest writer out there. The work she's done is so incredibly important. This is a military historian who was convinced that, you know, sometimes you just need violence. And then someone who was who was more of a nonviolent scholar challenged her, let's do the math. And they, they, they crunched over 100 years of data looking at revolutions, looking at uh, civil uh, uh, disorder, looking at attempts to change governmental systems across the world. And what they found... And, and they've they've done all the work that assess, uh, that that you know uh, someone who 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 understands how to do studies with uh, 
with the, the, the controls and, 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 the, and the, 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 the statistics. They've done all that work. I'm a humanities scholar. I'm sorry, I can't give you all that, all that vocab. <laughs> what they found and what Erica Chenoweth, who believed that violence found was that nonviolent resistance, not nonviolent spinelessness, but nonviolent resistance is so much more effective, so much more effective than violent resistance. And they're, the, the, the simple point that they make over and over and over again is that if you can't win people's hearts and minds, you, can't, you almost never win. Yes. And the way you win hearts and minds is not by beating people over the head with facts. It's by getting people to understand and feel for your cause. Real change, lasting change, uh, lasting political and social change, it begins with a small group of people with, with, a, with a good idea. But it's a good idea, and they're able to sell this idea. They're able to convince others through other good ideas, through ideas that others see as good. They can be subversive. They can be sometimes come across as somewhat aggressive to people, but they're not violent per se. They're not things that make people, that make the masses angry. When you make the masses angry, you lose. And so holding to polarized positions is, it may make you feel righteous, but it's not going to lead to success. Yes. And so then why are we even holding to these polarized positions? It, you would think we're holding them because we want to be successful. We care for our cause. But if we really care for our cause, the polarized position is probably not going to allow our cause to succeed. Truly, truly, though, just <laughs> at the end of the day, that's exactly it. And then that's where you sometimes have to just pump the brakes and separate your ego and really just prioritize, like you said, the cause of what exactly are you trying to achieve? Is that the best way to get there by staying so polarized? No, it's not. It's not where you're going to, how you're going to get to where you're going. How, I mean, you kind of touched on a friend that you had that had some choice words to say. What about some of your other friendships and how have those been affected by some of this division and what's been going on and how have you navigated that? So I think this is another important point. Okay. I mentioned one friend. I mentioned one friend and one friend only. We had, There was a large friend group that I was a part of. I, I lived in another town, another state. Um, we had hung out for years together. We were all fairly liberal in our thinking. But, uh, you know, in the, in, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, which, of course, uh, polarized the nation quite a bit, um, we were there, there was an email group back when we used to email with each other, sharing ideas, sharing thoughts on the election. The point is, one friend decided that she could not no longer be friends with the rest of us because the rest of us were saying, you can't, um, you, you know, we, we can't demonize the other side. Now, I don't know what other people's experience has been, but uh, in the in the six years since, are we six years beyond 2016, I think? Yes. Um, in the oh, six yeah. years, you know, it's it's been one friend, one friend. And I think that we need to we need to keep that in mind. Um, the pundits will, will and the politicians will tell us that everyone else is the enemy. And I don't think that has to be the case because my politics, um, the, the issues that I care about, as I said, as uh, there are a lot of issues I care about that pe some people would, would uh, maybe a lot of people would describe this fairly liberal, but I have not, um, I, I have, I have good friends on the far left. I have good friends on the far right. I have, I have lots of good friends all across the spectrum. I think that we underestimate the goodness of people yeah. and we overestimate how important those politics are. Yeah. Those politics can only destroy us if we let those politics destroy us, if we allow those politics to define us. And if we're allowing those politics to define us, it's because we are not associating enough with other people. We have driven ourselves and we are hiding in a, in a, in a foxhole somewhere in a political bunker. And, but it's, 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 it's a bunker that's, that's of our own making or of the making of, of, the, of the people we follow who are making a killing, who are living in mansions and flying in private jets, uh, off of the, uh, uh, um, paid for by our anger. Um, and so, yeah, I've lost one friend over six years. I don't think that this world is as polarized as it needs to be. I just want to play that on repeat. What you just said, 
everybody go back and listen to it. Oh my gosh, that was so good. That just captured it perfectly. Oh, that was so good. And you know, you, also, well, I was going to say you've probably heard the the study that was done years ago where they asked people where where they thought they stood on the political spectrum and then where they thought their friends stood on the political spectrum, where they thought their enemies stood on the political spectrum. And then they asked people actual questions about their, about actual policies, right? And so you can imagine what happens, right? Everyone imagines that their enemies are really extreme, right? But people also imagine that they themselves are more extreme than they actually are. But when the actual results of the study come out, it turns out that almost everyone is thinking in the same narrow centrist column. When it comes to actual thoughtful responses to issues, almost everyone is in the same place. But we think the enemy is way over there and we think we're quite further than we, than we actually are. And these, again, this isn't, this isn't some philosophers making this stuff up. This isn't just, you know, Nathan Richardson, the, 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 the literature professor who teaches art and politics of wandering, just saying these things. These are studies that people carry out. And what I'm surprised with is sometimes I share this information with certain people and they're just like, no, that can't be, that can't be. Like, but it is. It is. But it is. We actually are not all as divided as people want them, uh, would make us out to be. Now that doesn't mean to say, mean to suggest that there's nothing to be concerned about sure. because there's plenty to be concerned about because what we perceive to be reality can very quickly become a reality if we're not careful, right? And I think that's something you're concerned about. Obviously, this is why you ask these questions um, on your podcast, on your social media, yeah. because if we are if we are not vigilant, we could end up there. Yes, that's important to note that necessary vigilance. And also, it's important to remember the media is fueling it. That helps their bottom line. And yeah. they're wanting sensationalism. They're wanting all of this. And that sells, that sells. I mean, and that also serves a lot of purposes to have that represented division. I mean, whether or not it's even there. And like you had just said, like you just explained and cited with that study, it's not necessarily there. The division isn't necessarily there. It's upon us to be vigilant to make sure it doesn't get there. But yeah, we're not as divided often as we think we are. Yeah. So important to remember that when you're when you're reading the news and when you're looking through all those articles and when you're scrolling through social media that um, you don't fall into that trap of believing it and then also contributing to it. So important. Um, so as an educator, do you prioritize objectivity, especially with some of the classes uh, you teach? Well, you know, the short answer, of course, would be yes, right? Sure. I mean, the short answer is uh, objectivity, uh, yes. Um, we want equal voices in our classroom. Now, that being said, uh, also connected to the short answer is that doesn't mean that you give equal time and resources to every crackpot idea out there, right? I mean, once upon a time, I once upon a time I did when I used to teach international studies, I would allow the climate debaters to have their voice. At a certain point, I decided that I had yet to meet a scientist, um, and I knew plenty of scientists on campus, and they were all good people. None of them had agendas; they were simply doing the science, and there was just not enough. There was not enough reason to give equal voice to climate deniers, for example. And that's just an example I'll use. I, I hope I don't offend anyone out there, but I just couldn't find enough scientific justification to simply say objectivity is giving equal voice to everything. Um, I guess my other response though, my broader response to that question is, do you, do you prioritize objectivity? Is that, I guess, kind of going back to one of the themes we were talking about is there's a kind of subjectivity that allows us to be objective, if, if, if this makes sense. And I think that matters a lot in the classroom. In language learning, uh, there's, a, there, there's this idea of, in our, in our minds, we have what, what, what linguists refer to as the affective filter. And if we can't lower that affective filter, if we can't kind of lower our guard, you're never going to be able to speak effectively a, a, a foreign language in the classroom because there's so much anxiety or in the world, so much anxiety associated with, you know, getting language wrong. Yes. Yeah. So, so if we're going to speak effectively, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to lower 
the tension in the classroom. You got to lower those anxiety levels and get people feeling happy and make the foreign language classroom a fun place. It's not just by accident that that we sing lots of songs and play lots of games in the foreign language classroom. We're trying to lower that affective filter. Yes. But I think that's not just the case for language learning. It has to be the case for the discussion of serious ideas. If I throw out ideas potentially toxic, if I start, if we start talking about race and 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 class and uh, and 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 religion and politics in a, an ethnic studies classroom where there's not a sense of of real care and trust, um, um, uh, a real willingness to listen between the fact that between the professor and the students, the teacher and the students, I don't care how objective, how balanced you're trying to be. It's, you may find it very difficult to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Oh my gosh. Yes. I think a lot, uh, I actually was having a a conversation with a friend of mine who uh, was the chair of an ethnic studies department. And I was asking her about the effects of ethnic studies curriculum, right? Some uh, very, sometimes can be very controversial, right? And she admitted, she said, we're really good about, about initiating discussions, but we're not really good at, at resolving. She said, she admitted that they create sometimes as much, as many enemies as they create allies in these classes. And I thought, so what, 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 what's the purpose for these classes in the first place? Is it, do, do we educate merely to inform? I mean, I think education has a, has a greater good. It, it, informing people is a means, but it's a means to an end. And if we're, and if we're, and if we're creating classrooms that, that are polarizing our students, that are politicizing our students, that are making students angry, where students walk out and they're more angry with the person on the other side of the classroom than they were when they walked in, I'm not sure that we've accomplished what we want to accomplish. That's not to say that we don't, we want to address difficult issues, but we've got to address them in a way that, that people feel heard, uh, not easy stuff. I'm not saying anything, but we've got to, so, so when I, when you ask the question of objectivity, I think sometimes we, we, we kind of obsess about certain terms. We, we, we fetishize certain terms. We have to recognize that, that a classroom, like any, it's a social setting and there are a lot of subjectivities. There's yeah. a lot of subjectivity that people bring to the, to the conversation. And we've got to recognize that. We've got to address that. And only where, where students understand who I am and where I'm coming from, and I understand who students are, where they're coming from, there's a, there's a sense of being heard. I think only then are you going to be able to really wrestle with these issues in an honest way that's going to, that's going to really get people thinking in, in new ways, open to new ways of thinking and, oh and not God. simply closing down, closing down, closing down. Yes. Yes. Okay. What you had said about the effective filter and did I say that right? I yes, know I've yeah. heard about it before. Uh, I identify with that. Absolutely. I'm such a timid when it comes to speaking foreign languages. I'm so timid when it comes to that. And that's brilliant. That makes perfect sense. And I can see the value in like the songs and like, loosening the tension and lessening the tension and a magic word that you said was listening and that goes into what you had said about people needing to feel heard that's how you're going to make any tracks with anyone whether you're talking about politics whether you're talking to a partner that you're frustrated with for not closing the cabinet doors whatever the situation is the person needs to feel heard and that's where you're going to make any connection. Other than that, you're just going to be like butting heads. There's going to be no resolution. It's going to be nothing. And more often than not, it's just going to further polarize, but yes. And so I just know that's one of the most important things to me is feeling heard. So then keeping that in mind, that's what someone else you would expect would want too. And that just can be such an alchemizer just letting someone feel heard and then you can start to connect and start to understand each other and start to yeah resolve anything but that's so important i love what you had said and i love how you frame that that's so interesting and especially in a classroom yes absolutely yeah i, I we have to yeah i i guess I'll, i 
I could I could go on more, but I, I but I think I can. I think we we, we got the idea there. Ah, oh, yes, I I am so so happy with that. That's not even what I expected. Not that I necessarily had an expectation from that question, but man, knock that out of the park. Okay, so how do you you being a professor, and this is kind of just a basic question, but how do you specifically promote critical thinking and thought diversity? And this kind of just is in partnership with what we just talked about, but I guess expanding on that a little bit more, like, do you have any like key phrases or anything or key approaches? What do you do? Well, so years ago, um, I was having a conversation with my father, who's done quite a bit of teaching. And I can't remember the genesis of the question, but he basically said, I never ask a question I don't know the answer to. And I thought to myself, wait, no, I never should ask a question that I know the answer to. Um, and I don't get this right all the time, but I think the, the, I think if you want to create an atmosphere, an environment where there's real learning going on, where there's real listening going on, You've got to begin by asking real questions, um, honest questions, questions to which you don't know the answer. You may have many ideas, but I think that uh, if you really want to create critical thinking, where do, where does critical? I don't know that critical thinking comes from. Um, you know, you can you can read all sorts of books, buy all sorts of books. There's some fantastic books out there on you know the art of critical thinking and you know and uh, logical fallacies and all this business. But I think that critical thinking begins with asking real, honest questions mm-hmm. and trying to get students to ask real, honest questions. Why, why are we talking about this? Why are we studying this? What questions do you have of this material? And I wouldn't say that I run the best classes, but I try to run, I try to, I try to, to manage honest classes, classes where we're mm-hmm. really trying to explore things. I really want to know what students think. Um, yeah. Back when I was in grad school, I had a friend who um, who just had this ability to put everyone at ease because he really honestly wanted to know what people thought. Now, I came to discover as I got to know him better that he wasn't always impressed by their thoughts, but he was truly interested in them. He really wanted to know what made people tick. And so people who felt, who thought ideologically very, very different from him, he may still walk away from the conversation because I would talk with him afterwards. He may walk away from the conversation, not convinced at all by their ideas, but he was very, he was never disrespectful of the person either to their face or even afterwards. He really wanted to know, because he wanted to understand the, the, the processes by which they were coming up with these thoughts that in his mind made no sense. And I personally agreed with him. Sometimes we were talking to people, I thought, I cannot believe they think this. I can't believe that, you know, where are they even coming from? But whereas I was more likely to dismiss them and end up in an argument with them, he, they always felt great about themselves. They felt great about the conversation afterwards. And they would come around to saying, oh, I see your, they would also want to know what he was thinking. And ever since then, I've thought, there's 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 something there's something going on there it's it's an honest interest in the idea but also in the person expressing the idea and trying to figure out how this idea is is being generated so it's so critical thinking isn't just about getting to the idea but thinking through how we're getting to that idea and i think when we do that then then people can't help but feel heard because we're trying to analyze the whole hearing process Yes. And, and again, I'm, I'm probably giving more theory than I can actually put into practice, but these are things that I think about and that yeah, I try to. Yeah. 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 Curiosity is a door opener in so many ways, just like with your friend and what he showed curiosity is what helps you want to dig into that. And people can sense when you're asking from pure curiosity or when you're asking because you just want to, open up that conversation so you can make your point people can sense that and when you're truly interested in the other person that just you're able to sidestep all of the nonsense and you're able to 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 open doors and to connect with people and curiosity like if you're asking 
curiosity from your point of view too. It also, I'm trying to think of how to articulate that because I have so much going on in my mind, just thinking about it. But when you're asking, let's say that you're having an argument with someone about something. And if you just shift into curiosity mode and you, you get curious about it, all of a sudden you're putting your ego to the side and you're wanting to find out the truth or you're wanting to find out it's not even to prove a point. It's not to justify or validate yourself. It's to, to resolve and it's to, to get at the heart of the matter. And curiosity is what helps keep you engaged too. So let's say that you hear about a certain topic or a certain event or whatever, and you have your initial opinions about it and your initial thoughts. But if you stay curious, then you're able to dig into that and be like, oh, okay, well, initial impressions notwithstanding, like what what actually is going on here? And that gets you to dive a little deeper and maybe get to the actual facts, quote unquote facts of it. And you just articulated beautifully, more beautifully than I was able to earlier, the politics of kindness, how kindness is political. Because, because what you just described is transformative. Both you and your friend come out of that conversation transformed with new ideas, seeing the world in a new way, and likely, possibly voting or thinking about candidates or consuming media in new ways because both of you have been heard and, and, and a real transformation will have taken place. Yeah. That, how kindness is a politics. Whereas if I'm trying to be political, if you're trying to be political with your friend, nothing is going to change out of that conversation. Yes. And, and so therefore nothing is going to transform. There has been no shift in power structures. There's been no change in policy. Therefore politics has failed. Yeah. But where, where there is kindness, where there is true open curiosity, the political has actually taken place. And so I just want to interrupt there because I don't feel like I gave it justice earlier in the, in, in the conversation, but you just articulated that is how kindness is political. And so you are doing, you are not a spineless wimp. You are, tra- you are being transformative in that honest listening and working through that honest curiosity um, in engaging that conversation with your friend. Yes, yes, and it's not spinelessness. It's distinguished from spinelessness by intention. So if you're intentional about it and intentional curiosity, no, you're you're not spineless. You're not wishy-washy. It's yeah, there's intention there. And, and yeah, intentional and curiosity it, and kindness. It requires a lot of spine to listen yeah. to somebody, right? When they oh. because you'll begin the conversation and they will be saying things that sound absolutely outlandish making claims that they heard, or maybe you're making the claims that you heard, some soundbite, half digested, you thought it made sense, but you haven't really thought it through, and it really comes across as offensive, it really gets that person angry. This is not a spineless activity. No. This is not be of real listening. Now, that being said, I uh, may be taking us on another tangent, and, and, and we don't need to go there, but you know, the challenge is with all of this is that we live in a society that is less social than it has ever been, probably in the in, in all of human history. We have never, we've in the last 20 years, we have all put in our headphones, put in our earbuds, we're staring at our phones and we are not in, interacting and not engaging. And so, you know, that's that goes back to that we have to be vigilant and very concerned because all these things that we're, you know, we're having this kind of kumbaya conversation here. But if the conversation doesn't happen, if we can't communicate with others, if we can't open ourselves up to others, if we can't create these social situations, then then none of this is possible. And oh, we live yeah. in a world where, and I've seen, you know, with students over 25 years, my students are less socially engaged, less socially adept than they've ever, ever been. I send my students on weekly walks as part of their, in addition to readings, um, in addition to, to, to reflection papers, they have to go for a weekly walk. And on those walks, they, they have to engage with other people. They have to put away their phones. They have to take out their earbuds. They have, to, they have to just see people. I don't tell them they have to have conversations, but they end up having conversations. And they, and oh they, and they communicate to me in class and in their reflections that they sometimes have these transformative experiences simply because they've unplugged. But for them, it's, it's a radical experience to go outside go for a walk and see other people and acknowledge them and be acknowledged. That's, 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 it's beautiful, but it's also very concerning that this is such a radical experience. Yes, that's true. That's true. People. So just, you know, things to think about. 
you know, oh, how does the world, everyone needs to go for a walk, take, take out their headphones, uh, put away their phone and go for a walk. I was going to say, can we assign that to the whole world? <laughs> Blanket assignment, everybody, everybody has homework. Yes, there's so much to that. There's so much to that connecting, not being distanced by a screen, by technology, by whatever, and just plugging into people instead of a device. Oh my gosh, that's so transformative. And also it's hard to hate up close. And that's why it's so powerful to be in front of someone, even if you're not even necessarily talking, but just being aware of someone and just being in their presence. And it's hard. It's hard because then you start to you start to see that they're a human and you start to see that they're like you. And oh, that's that's fantastic. Um, one thing more I wanted to say about the curiosity, the power of that too, is there are so many sound bites that we see on social media or wherever, whatever we're reading or whatever we're experiencing. Um, and if there are like certain theories that are bouncing around that we're not necessarily sure of like look it up google it do do a few searches and get don't just take somebody's word for it if you just hear like one commentator's comments on it like really dig in and try to get a hold and get a grasp of like what that theory is or whatever that concept is before you spout off on it and so curiosity really can just <laughs> really dissolve some of the the nonsense that gets in our way but oh i love everything that you had said and yeah I know that I've taken up an hour of your time and I promised you an hour tops. It's been over an hour. So thank you so much, everybody. Your homework is to go on a walk, at least weekly. Do it at least weekly. Unplug and go for a walk and stay kind. Stay kind and curious. Any can I, can I, can I make one more recommendation? Oh, please, please. Um, and, and I'll keep it short. I could go on. Oh, on go on as much as you want to. <laughs> But the other thing that we need to do is we need to lock ourselves into associations with people who are not like us. Yeah. Because, because, because there is not time enough in the world. None of us have the resources to read everything we need to read, to consult everything we need to consult, right? I mean, there's a phrase that's been going on for a few years, do the research. Well, I'm sorry. Very, very few of us can do enough research to really resolve all the issues, to really understand all the issues, especially when we're being fed our research by way of algorithms. The best way, the best research anyone can do is to lock someone in, lock yourself into associations, whether that be with to a civic club, um, a church organization, but a church organization where you're not just going to be with the like-minded. I mean, uh, again, I could go on and on and on, but probably the most important thing I've ever done in my life is that in my, in my university life, I have been surrounded by liberal professors that entire time. And in my own personal life, I was raised in a church and we can talk about whether I'm faithful or not, but I attend and that has made all the difference. Now, I attend, I am not the most faithful person. I am not the most believing person, but I think it has been transformative for me to spend half my life surrounded by people who tend to be fairly conservative and half my life, my professional life with people who tend to be fairly liberal and my person, perhaps personal spiritual, if you will. And I'm not sure I would ever describe myself as spiritual, <laughs> but with, with a tribe that is more conservative than I am. Ah. Well, I say, who are you associating with? And we know that studies show that most of us these days do not associate with people who are different from us. Maybe it's just the, the group of people you get together and play with soccer with, uh, you know, uh, once once a week. But if if you are, you know, a super woke on the left or you know super Trumpy on the on the right, and all you ever do is play soccer with like, super Trumpy people on the right or a bunch of super woke people on the left, it, it's we have got to associate with other people. We've got to force ourselves to serve, to work alongside with other people. I, I just can't emphasize that enough. And I, and to me, when I think about the, the challenges facing our, our culture, our society, our nation, and our world, it is that we are increasingly retreating, even when it's not political, when it's just social or cultural, we've hidden ourselves into bunkers and we've got to get out. And I don't know, I don't know where to tell people to go. Um, as I say, I, I attend a church every, every week and I serve in that church. And it's not because I'm a, I'm a super believing or super religious person at heart. And there are times when I felt like I don't want to be there. But, but when I think about 
why I think the things I think, it's because I associate with people from all across the spectrum and I know they're good people. Ooh. Even though ideas are just so, sometimes so <laughs> off, or they may think my ideas are so off, but we associate regularly. It's like having a giant extended family that you have to have Thanksgiving dinner with every single week. And we need to be having uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinners with our uncle every single week. And that, I will say once again, is not an act of spinelessness. Mm-mm. That is an act of political courage. Oh, and if, we yeah. really want to, if we truly want to save our society, we have got to be courageous enough to get ourselves out of our comfort zone. Yes. And go join the Kiwanis Club. Go join the PTA and try to make common cause with the people who want to burn all the books in your library or the people who want to introduce your books in your library that you don't want there. We have got to barbecue with the enemy. And if we're not barbecuing with the enemy, no amount of research will save us. Oh That's- my gosh, yes. Amen. That's a perfect way to tie it all in because you're frozen. I hope I didn't just interrupt you. No, I can okay. hear you. Um, that is the perfect way because even in the back of my mind, when I was talking about research, you know, like a theory that doesn't initially make sense here or whatever, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yes, but people have limited capacity and bandwidth. We have so much coming at us every day, competing for our attention, competing for our priorities, all of that. So that was the perfect way to address that because that just resolves all of that because yes we can only care about so much we can only i mean we just talked about being on our phone so much we need to unplug and step away from them and so that takes care of it if you're associating with people that you don't normally associate with there you go that's how you're able to just handle all of that oh my gosh that's such a brilliant way to put it thank you thank you thank you thank you for this conversation it's been fun good i Uh, hope so been fun to think about these ideas and uh you know good luck going forward with all of this i will thank i will be you. eagerly uh following your your work thank you so, so much thank you thank you i appreciate you <laughs>